it's no longer good enough to design vehicles with beautiful styling. Automakers must design vehicles that build trust with customers. On today's show, how do you design an autonomous vehicle people can trust? Find out why designers have to become stewards of morality. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Great show today. We're going to be talking about the future of design. Not so much the technology, although we might get into some of that, but more of the philosophy behind it. And I've got three great guests to talk just about that, starting with Phil Gilbert. He's the general manager of design at IBM. Phil Burchard is the director of design business sector for Dassault Systems, a company that's got the most amazing software. And Jivak Badve is the vice president of Sunberg Ferrar, an industrial design studio. I want to thank all three of you for getting together to talk about this. Uh, Phil Gilbert, let me start with you. Uh, you know, I thought that, you know, we'd be talking a lot about technology, but as we prepared for the show, you and the other two started taking it off in a different direction. Seems to me that recently design's all about being delighting the customer, but in fact, what you talked about is you have to start designing for trust and values. Yes. Expound on that. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's it's playing out in the headlines every day, and it doesn't matter whether it's on you know sites that we think are connecting us socially, whether we're talking about the impact of autonomous vehicles. Uh, I think more and more we're starting to see that. Uh, the the implications of a, of, of, of a product in the world don't stop with whether the user is simply delighted or simply buys the thing or buys the next version of the thing. We're now starting to see that people are getting more and more uh, more and more concerned about the the impact of it, not necessarily just the social impact, but the impact on society, the impact on their lives. What are the downstream implications, the unintended consequences of certain design decisions? We're certainly starting to see uh, our designers leading the charge here, and we're starting to see leading-edge indicators that our clients are, too. GVAC, you have a lot of clients, I'm sure, as uh, the, the head of a design studio. Are you seeing this sort of thing? I, I think absolutely, yes. I would like to second what Phil is saying is, so the delight, the desire, uh, the attractiveness, the aesthetics has to be there, but before that comes the usefulness and the usability of what that product, that object, uh, that vehicle, uh, that artifact has to bring in your life. So understanding those fundamental needs, the job to be done, if a person wants to do this, and he has to, first of all, be offered to do that, and then on the top of that, you can layer all the other elements that will make the life more easier, but never forget the authenticity, the originality of why the person is buying, exchanging their hard-earned money for that artifact itself. Artifact can be a software, hardware, or an amalgamation of it, but making sure they're buying it and doing it for the right reasons. Because I think, Phil, designers are typically, when I say designers, any creative design mind, they represent the citizen on the road. So not just this, not just working for and corporate or the client, but what are the end needs of not just the citizen, but the ecology also. So very, mm -hmm. very amazing, but as a designer, when you go to school, you talk about ecology, talk about pollution, talk about the other things, unintended consequences, as Phil said, making sure those are also dealt with. So I think we all are in the same boat. Yeah. You know, just to build on that, you used to take a lot of pride in the car you owned. 
you know, was a big part of your identity. Well, today you might take pride in the fact that you don't own a car, just to second what, these, what you guys are saying. You know, the fact that you can get an Uber or Lyft or other rides, and you don't have to own a car, you don't own a car can be a source of pride too. And then, so you're not contributing to the traffic, congestion, or pollution or other things. So the kind of pride that someone takes in their lifestyle can extend to even not owning something, especially when there's other alternatives for getting from point A to point B other than owning a car. So, Phil Gilberg, I, and I'll ask you guys too, but I, you kick this off. How do you design something that's so that somebody looks at it and they, they trust it, they value it? How, how do you do that? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think we're just finding out. I, I, think we're, I, I think we're just starting to push on these levers of what does it mean to design for trusted relationships? One of the folks that I work with, one of our distinguished designers, has said we're moving from the era of designing for transactions to designing for relationships. And that's kind of a profound thought in my mind that, because that notion of relationship is really, that is the element or the elemental kind of aspect of establishing trust. Uh, the reason I trust you is, is something in our relationship. And so we're, we're pursuing it in, in a number of different areas. How do you design for trust? Uh, it may be that uh, you make sure that there's much more transparency in the relationship. Now we're talking about maybe blockchain. How do you design for trust? You make sure that the experience is consistent across surfaces. I start to trust a company or a relationship more if they're consistent in multiple contexts. So now you might think, ah, so you're talking about a digital screen on your mobile phone or in the car, and the product itself, and the dealer experience. If those are consistent, I have more trust. So we're starting to think about uh, this very thing. How, how can you intentionally build trust, and how do you convey that to the person you're trying to work with? And, and you mentioned about the looks of the product, how to convey that. I think it literally goes back to 3.6 billion years of evolution. More than 80% of what we perceive in the world is through our eyes. If how things matter and they tell you, the affordance of the object tells you about use me this way or hold me this way or this is a mug, this is a handle, hold the handle or it goes to complex machinery too. How you design the, so it's not just beauty is a layer of it. I'm not denying that. It has to be beautiful. So anything we do in the, our studios, it always is beautiful, but we start solving the right problem beautifully. So it starts in a completely different area to make sure you're solving the architecture of the entire product or the object and then making sure People are buying it for not just viability for the business, not just feasibility as an engineering product, but also for the desirability, like, it's going to add some joy to my life. Apart from trust, why not right. to add a little bit peacefulness into our already uh, harassed lives, I would say, going from one place to another. Well, we talk about the age of experience. We're in the age of experience. And a relationship, I think, is about an experience that you have. For sure. And if you have an experience with a product, you know, that gives you pride, that you feel good about being inside of a car with a certain brand, or the fact that, like you said, you go to the dealership and it gets fixed, or maybe you never had to go to the dealership. Some people, if their car lasts 20 years, it's got 250,000 miles, they have great pride in that, and they've got a great relationship with that truck or that car. Somebody else wants a new car every six months or every two years, whatever, and they take great pride in that. And they'll go back to the same brand over and over again because they had a great experience when they owned the first one. So I think the relationships are built upon the excellence of the experience, 
that the consumer you know has with that product. The relationship happens normally. And, 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 sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we where I think this all is is headed is that our designers, like our engineers and architects, our designers are having to become systems thinkers. And it's no longer uh, it's no longer enough to simply think about uh, a product in a given context. It has to be the product in all contexts and kind of all contexts as it reflects on the product. Uh, and so you start to get into things that, uh, like sustainability, things that architects have been involved in for a very long time. We're now starting to see issues of sustainability creep into even all digital products, like a social media platform. What does it mean to be sustainable? Uh, we're starting to test that. We're starting to see that in the headlines as we speak, uh, what some of these things mean. But I think ultimately it means that we have to start thinking about, much more holistically about the systems in which these experiences are living uh, and all of the possible contortions that that can put on them. And as they say, a good product cannot be designed in isolation. You have to understand the entire ecosystem of mm -hmm. it, uh, about where it lies, the space it occupies in time and space, basically, and making sure you're solving the problem. And the main thing is, as we advise our clients, is not just solving the problem from the category, but really trying to extinguish the problem from the entire ecosystem. Because if a person is accessing or a company is doing it from only from one angle and you push the problem to some other category, the end user, the poor user, he or she might be still undergoing the frustrations, the annoyance, uh, the helplessness of what they want to go. So when designers collide together and try to solve those things in a systemic view, that's where the pure future would be. And the good thing is, many corporations are going that way. Again, you want to go out to dinner, so where should I go to dinner tonight? Well, I like sushi restaurants. So if you could get in your car and there's a system that says, hey, where's the best sushi restaurant that's close by? Let's say you're in another city in a rental car or whatever, and it would tell you where to go. I mean, we have these systems already, right? You can talk to your phone or your, your device at home, but your car could do the same, and I think they already do to some degree. This is this, is this holistic system that the experience of being in your vehicle is part of your, it's an extension of your lifestyle. And it finds the place, and of course it can guide you how to get there, give you the directions, and bam, you're having dinner at a really cool sushi restaurant in Los Angeles you didn't even know existed five minutes before you got in your car. So this is fascinating. How cool is that? Because what you're talking about is not just designing cars, but everything that the car could do. And, and how do you, you're really talking about designing an entire ecosystem, okay. right? Not just a product that can operate in different uh, ecosystems. Uh, how do you make sure you're thinking through all the, the permutations and possibilities? It takes a lot of work. First of all, what you're essentially saying is how do you become empathic with, a, with somebody's life and lifestyle? And it takes a combination of qualitative understanding, putting yourself quite literally in that person's shoes, going out and doing field observations, generative user research, and I think that uh, as a society of companies and products and, and, and designers, we don't do enough of that. Just that generative user research. What is it in, in the real world that this person is doing? Uh, what are they feeling? What are they perceiving? What are they saying? Uh, and then following it up with you know, ever more uh, impactful uh, surveys, if you will, of where they are in their journeys. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of systems that we can use to, to do that, like net promoter score or other things, but that combination of generative uh, observation, uh, field research, qualitative understanding of, of different needs, and then 
quantify, quantifiable data coming back in, uh, all of these and things are all these things are happening. And all from the user-centric perspective. So there are things that we can do, technology can do, and those are good to have as your bank, idea banks as such, but making sure going out there in the real fundamental market, understanding what are the real needs, the pain points of people, trying to understand through generative research, ethnography, or all the other techniques about what is it, what is the unarticulated needs? What are the latent kind of desires? What are the unspoken dreams of people? Because finally, if you try to analyze them and try to get a pattern, you cannot fulfill all the dreams of people. You have to understand what your company is strong at and what are your core competitiveness also to align that with the business. But understanding those elements and then trying to make sure what you're offering is uh, still going to be, uh, let's say, worth the value of exchange of transaction between them. Yeah. So once you go that in pure design research, which is different than market research, understand how people are going to use them mm -hmm. and more than that, how people are going to misuse them. The unintended right. consequences, you're going to solve something by offering something to them it should just seamlessly fit in the ecosystem and not create any other ripples, any distortions. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure it reflect what the social impacts are, what the social norms are, societal response are, and then trying to do it in a good, robust way. And you know that design studios, you, have a, you work for a design studio, they have staff, they have a large staff, and I think the collaboration of various members of your staff is part of how you do it. Yep. Because if you've got 10, 15, 20 people who all work together, they all have different ideas. And those ideas can all be respected. And I think you get some collective ideas about what's, what kinds of things could work. I know all of, all of the design organizations are, have a lot of people that have to collaborate together. And of course, some of them are multicultural, too. We have design studios in America that are, that are owned and run by Japanese or by Europeans of various kinds. So... We, I think, and, and our systems can allow people to collaborate around the world now. So that the, the way to get at that is to get as many voices as possible through your own staff, but also through things, you know, you work for Don't IBM. I mean, IBM Cloud is being advertised like crazy on television right now. Well, isn't but another that, thing? That makes available all sorts of data yep. to everybody. And you have tools, too, because Dassault Systems does some of the most amazing simulation yeah. software that is so realistic. So I would imagine as you're talking about designing for an ecosystem and all the different permutations, that you can actually, in a very realistic way, simulate what that product's going to go through. Exactly. You can try things in a way that lets you try hundreds of ideas and vet them out in the virtual space as opposed to having to build everything to try it all out. And that applies not only to cars, but to all sorts of products. So it's true that we, we are very proud of the fact that Dassault Systems supports these kinds of studio activities because if you can bring your design to life in the virtual, and if you don't like it, throw it away, try something different. You mentioned maybe coffee mugs or something else. It doesn't have to be a car, but you cer certainly can try different things and you can bring it to life in space almost like a, like a Disney movie or like a movie yeah. and see what it looks like. And then if you don't like it, it's, it's okay because it's just a digital thing that you can then just go on to the next idea and the next one, and each one builds on the one before. Mm -hmm. And if you start filtering in data that you pulled from the cloud yep. or from, from the big data they talk about, the Internet of Things, that kind of stuff, you, know, you can vet these ideas and put them into your products and see what they look like before you have to build, because you can't build a thousand prototypes, a thousand different things, but you can look at a thousand different things on the computer. Jivak, you said something very interesting, discovering how people might misuse a product. And I think this comes back to what you kicked off with uh, 
Phil, of designing trust. If you can figure out how somebody might do something wrong in the design stage, you can easily design, well, I shouldn't say easily. Now you can address how you start to design something so that it never happens. And, and the thing is, means we all read Harvard Business Magazines or any other magazines too, they always say fail fast, fail often. That's good, but not in the real market. <laughs> it has to be done in a design or a lab exactly. where you do exactly. prototypes, might be digital or physical, might be just paper or cardboard or just wood, but low precious materials and try it out. Try to do the role playing, try to place it in hands of real user. I'm a designer, we are designers here, but designer is not the real user. You have to make sure how the real users are going to look at it from their mental models. You might design an artifact, it might read something completely else to a different person, trans culture, trans age demographics. So the art is trying to make sure you fail fast, fail often in a more controlled lab design studio-ish kind of an area and then learn them uh, using processes exactly. like you know, exactly. digital areas to earn the knowledge, bring it back to the next level. It is an iterative process, and there is, has to be sufficient time for that. Yes, it is easy what you said. It's not robotic science. You just have to have the proper gumption and temperation and the time to make sure we want to do the right thing, rather than just doing it for pass to the market. And the company has to have the culture to allow you to fail and learn, yep. not fail and be criticized. If the company, the executive management, whatever, allows you to fail early, fail often, but doesn't hold it against you, but right. says, this is a learning experience, we'll move on to better ideas, then you get a culture of innovation that is As safe. long as you move on to better ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say that I've got, I have two quotes that I've handwritten in my office, and one of them is kind of pertinent by a designer, Nathan Shedroff. He's a great designer. And his quote is, the role of the designer is to trigger the right response. And it's just this amazing, it really touches on all of these points. It's as a designer, you should understand the use of what you're designing so well that without, essentially without training, without teaching, but the right response happens by the end user. And I think that's uh, it's a very elegant way to think about how we, uh, how we think about those unintended consequences, because you have to understand those if you're always triggering the right response. I love that, the right response kind of a thing, because finally, as designers, anywhere in the world, any good design studio, one of the things that we also mention is start, stop doing for all things to all people. Start by doing something to someone. Mm -hmm. So that becomes right over there on the point about, okay, so when we say that doesn't mean only do one product, that means do a portfolio of products. But when you do this, this has to evoke the right response for that persona, for right. that demographics. Then you can design a different set of products for a different demographic, which have, is, can elicit a different response. But as long as it is intended, it is curated to have this response from over here, this response from over here, this might be, let's say, the luxurious, prestigious category. This might be the everyday bread and butter category. That's perfectly okay. But as long as you try to make sure you're not diluting here, it can be polarizing. This might not be liked by this demographic. That's perfectly okay. As long as you have the right alignment. It finally goes back to Maslow's pyramids, right? If you mm -hmm. go and design for the top self-actualization triangle and people love that, people are drawn towards it, that's the best thing. You can save some marketing dollars over there where <laughs> people seek you out. And no matter what, we talked about social media, we have always been reference world, mouth-to-mouth -mouth kind of an advertisement things, and that is more true in the social media world. If people and users are seeking out the best product and they're happy, they are proud to show it off their next cocktail party. Hey, I bought this product because this is what you must do. And that comes to the, the right response elicitation. I love that. So the auto industry has a real opportunity here based on what you're all talking about right now. 
and that's the move into autonomous cars and mobility services. Mm -hmm. As you all know, the public's very leery about these cars. How can the industry start designing products so that people have trust in them and, and welcome this new world that's coming? Uh, <laughs> the, I, think, I think we all know the answer is right in front of us. All the answers for the hardest problems in the world are right in front of us, literally. We have to let people experience that mode of autonomous city. I, so I'm here for the last 15 years in the U.S. I was born in India. So I was born in an area where typically it's common to have a driver-chauffeur-driven vehicle. So that if you take the, that perspective away, I was always in a vehicle where I was not driving. So door-to-door, point-to-point, you can make use of your time in your vehicle. You can read magazines, goof around, talk, gameplay. If people experience that, that's a great thing. But the greatest thing is... Here also people have experienced that. We had amazing romantic time of the railways. What you want to do in a railway, eat a burrito, read a magazine, stand up, go to the bathroom, come back. That's exactly what people have experienced. Now how to capture that into this new pod or this vehicle and let people have a small first puff of it. And when they understand that and like it can liberate time and you can still do what you want to do and add more value. I think it's there. It needs to be properly channeled from that perspective. It's already happening, John. I mean, you already trust the backup camera that shows you how you back up so you don't hit somebody behind you. And you have warning lights maybe on your mirrors to tell you when someone's in the blind spot. You don't really question that you don't trust those warning devices to tell you when there's danger. So I think little by little, people will begin to trust more and more. If the car parallel parks itself, the first time it's maybe a little kind of creepy when the car parks itself, but after you've seen it do it and it's better than you could have done, you're like, hey, maybe this isn't so bad. I think little by little, people will accept, um, let's say, assisted driving, which then eventually becomes more and more assist. And I think we grow into it just the way we grow into anything in life. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, certainly, transparency is going to play a role in this. And I think that there's there's probably a coming dialogue that society will have uh, around how transparent the private companies that are bringing these to market will have to be and how much the regulators will allow them to to push forward. I've been involved with uh, 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 folks in the the disabilities community, and uh, one of the things that is a fear, which is interesting in in that community, is that the the state regulators will enforce too much... uh, of existing car technology on top of the autonomous vehicles. So, for example, we'll continue to enforce that there will have to be a steering wheel and pedals and it will be able to be uh, uh, taken over. The reason that that's not necessarily a great thing long term is because autonomous vehicles give us an ability to completely reimagine the cabin space that can affect the lives of people with disabilities profoundly. Uh, in in, in positive ways. And so we want to make sure that the experiments that are allowed to be run are really letting us test the boundaries of the possibilities of autonomous vehicles for all citizens. Uh, But that tension is there, and I think it's going to be very real, and I think ultimately it will be played out around this issue of trust and uh, and, uh, transparency. You know, elevators really, used to always have an operator. In right. the beginning of elevators, there was an operator. Great example. And I think from the beginning, the elevator didn't, didn't need an operator. It never needed an operator. But people felt more comfortable in an elevator with an operator. But now, you wouldn't even think of it. It's completely redundant. So I think, again, over time, we'll learn to trust as, as designers. 
our community of designers designs better and better cars with their engineering colleagues and all that other thing. And that element that Phil said about Nathan's quote about the right kind of response, it has always been proven out in the age of machines too. Let's say, let's say go back 50, 60 years. At that time, most of the childbirth is one of the most emotive thing you want in your life and you're looking care for a baby. It was always done with a midwife way back in the house. Now, today, 99, more than 99% of childbirths happen in a hospital or in a childbirthing center in the midst of machines. We love to trust them because they are doing the right thing for us in the back. At the end, people self-select like, no, I cannot take risk with my firstborn or my secondborn somewhere back in, in a house. I want to go in the midst of machines because in matter of of that final trusting, they are coming in and saving my wife and saving my kids. So that has completely evolved from believing in machines to where we have a trust factor with that. The same thing will happen with autonomous vehicles as they are evolving. People, when they taste it, they understand the value of it, they will say, okay, I think I can do something more with the time and the money I save. Mm -hmm. It's going to be saved. Mm -hmm. It, we're, we're down to the very end. This is, I, I'm not sure we're going to get it through it all, but uh, Phil Gilbert, let me start with you. Are the design schools preparing a new generation for what we're talking about? Mm. I think that they're starting to grapple with this, and I think that they're coming at it from a couple of places. One of the things that Phil mentioned earlier that I really loved is this notion of team diversity and collaboration. This is certainly something that five years ago we felt like uh, the, the, the schools were kind of behind the curve of really preparing their uh, students, and I don't think this is necessarily just a design school thing, I think it's all professions. They weren't doing enough teaming across professions. Uh, and that multidisciplinary teaming, that more, more intentionally forming diverse teams and teams with all of these inputs that, that, that you talked about, that is foundational to all of this. Uh, the team has to reflect the market, is one of the things we've learned. If the team doesn't reflect the market, the probability of you hitting the market is much, much lower. So collaboration, and, and they've done a great job of bringing multidisciplinary collaboration into the schools just even over the last five years. And I think now you're starting to see more and more groups talk about uh, the ethics, especially in the digital spaces, the ethics that are going to be required and how do you bring a user-centered perspective to this debate around trust and ethics and sustainability. Uh, and I think that they're starting to look at this. I think the generation of students is way ahead of the generation of professors today, <laughs> uh, which is a very hopeful sign on my part. Real good. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. I love what you're saying, though. Boy, if you get the teams, now you can talk about this multidisciplinary kind of approach to design. But Phil Gilbert from IBM, Phil Burchard from Dassault Systems, Jivak Badve from Sunberg Ferrar. Thank you guys Thank for you. a very interesting discussion. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Me.